These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. As we get on to chapter 18, the sci-fi media property that comes to mind is not Star Trek, but specifically this extended conversation between Annie and Abigail felt a lot like some of the personal character arcs and long drawn out discussions that were present in the Mass Effect series. I've been replaying Legendary Edition for months now, stopping occasionally to do other things, but returning to it and obviously one of the centerpieces of that arc of stories is the relationship between Shepard and Garrus Vakarian their own personal arcs and how you choose to have your Shepard shape the emotional and developmental arc of Garrus but there's other elements to it as well uh, in particular Mass Effect 3 Tally pondering a home back on the old quarry and homeworld of Rannoch feels like it uh, it shaped a little bit the conversation of what are you going to do when this is all done. Another memorable and ongoing topic that is visited with many Mass Effect characters in the third game is the weight not only of all those killed in the war with the Reapers, but the number of people killed by Shepard and their team specifically. It's not a subtle topic. The gameplay of Mass Effect is very combat-centric, and even if you play a Paragon, there is the potential to kill over 2,000 opponents over the course of play, which we know because there's an achievement for doing that. Sure, some of those opponents are animals or non-sentient mechs. It doesn't change the fact that most of them were people. And at one point, a particularly religious member of the crew says a prayer for Shepard, understanding how it might be to carry all that. My point is is that even though Annie and Frank are not characters in a first-person shooter game, they have also killed many as soldiers in the RSA. So the topic of Frank maybe being unable to quit the army does feel like the experience of Commander Shepard could have factored into this conversation. After coming back emotionally from devastation, this conversation gives them room to ponder this future away from the perpetual war for survival that has dominated their lives. It's a wonderful character piece, and we see Annie and Abigail deepen their relationship. It's once more exactly what we need in this moment before more of the main plot can unfold. We like seeing Team Steam become more close-knit, and everyone gets their chance to shine, but... It feels significant that these two characters get an entire chapter to themselves in order to talk about some of the stuff that is weighing them down, not simply in terms of the goal that has been set before them to help the world heal, but just in terms of how they feel in this world that has shaped 
around them and how it has shaped them in turn. I'd also add that we don't get moments like this often in action movies or any media that bears a resemblance to that sort of thing. New Century surpasses the Bechdel test on numerous occasions, and that test in and of itself is pretty fucking basic for seeing if a piece of media has decent female representation. Chapter 18 gives us a look at two strong-willed women in front-facing leadership roles having the kind of discussion we don't usually see from women in an action-focused property. Most often it's two men. After that, it's a man with a female adjunct. And if you're very lucky, a woman with a male adjunct, like in Fury Road. Two women protagonists is so rare, I can't think of any others off the top of my head. And forget it entirely if you're looking for something not bound to a gender binary. Secret Rooms set the stage for this very kind of thing, and now Steamheart gets to follow up on that promise. It continues from what we have seen in Arlington with like Annie having certain impulses and dilemmas that are personal to her that she doesn't share with Butler, even mm. when they reunite at the end of that book. The conversation that she has with Abigail is actually quite forthcoming, mm. and it is indicative of this idea that Frank and Annie have felt like possibly the strongest unit we've seen so far in a series that has a lot of units in it, a mm. lot of duos who are either coming together or have felt like they're still connected but have become undone in some way. This complicates that impression by showing that there are certain things that they are reticent to share with one another. Mm. And come to think of it, I think Arlington is actually very important in priming us for this side of their relationship because they are apart from one another for the majority of that narrative, meaning their individual characteristics and ongoing baggage get more open examination. Before then, it's easy to see them as this well-oiled two-person unit, especially when held in relief against James and Abigail, who we come to learn have had many years of emotional build-up that have got in the way of them fully synergizing. Mm. Here, there's a sense of uncertainty because you want to take hope and comfort in the terrible duty that Thomas tasked these two with in at least the fact that this is going to two people who are rock solid with one another and can shoulder it together. But quite understandably, there are certain walls that are difficult to take down, even with someone you share the world with. It's not necessarily enough to set off warning bells. It's just something that complicates and add layers to this relationship. I mean, it's a truism in general that even if you choose to share your life with somebody else, that there may be certain things that you don't feel comfortable talking about, which is why any relationship that feels threatened by two people in a pairing having friends outside of that, if there's someone that disagrees with that idea, that thinks that the two of them should be everything to one another, that's a sign potentially that the relationship could have toxic elements. Just as we are none of us an island unto ourselves, we need a plurality of ideas and a varied access to other people that allow us to be different parts of ourselves with different people. 
it's not a bad thing that you need to be mm. able to discuss things with someone other than your life partner, because mm. each individual person is going to have their own blind spots, things that they don't necessarily realize are problems. And so therefore, in order to be able to discuss it with someone that is more objective about a situation that can understand where that other person is coming from on an emotional level, that's important to be able to have access to that, whether that is a separate set of close friends or a therapist or whatever. When it happens, it's not something that we become alarmed to and want to say, no, that's wrong. It's just something that shows that these two, like anyone else, have a lifetime of their own stuff and a lifetime ahead of them of their individual and personal development, they will be able to solve a lot of that together. But there is always going to be stuff that does need to be solved apart or considered by themselves for themselves. And if that can be done in a way that feels like you can work through that, like you can basically work alone together if that makes sense then mm. that is something that you hope for but at the very least at least this tells us that this is a very genuine relationship that will be subject to all of the stresses that any relationship is uh, subject to especially one in such stressful circumstances as these exactly one of the things you alluded to earlier is Annie and Frank are sort of like the keystone to this endeavor. So making sure that the two of them get along is important to make sure that the group doesn't fracture. They're basically, to a certain extent, the, the team Steam's parents. But also the very existence of the two of them is emblematic of the kind of relationship that we don't necessarily see a whole lot in fiction because certain writers view a stable married couple as boring. Honestly, one of the best parts of New Century is seeing this pillar and the way that, for the most part, they're able to work through anything together. But before you can even do that, you have to find a way to begin the conversation. If you can't do that with your partner, seeking counsel of another could be a way around that. Alternatively, in speaking with another, it's how one may realize that there is even a conversation that needs to be had by voicing thoughts that had gone unspoken. Even in stable relationships, there are still issues, and these issues need to be externalized with somebody else if you don't feel comfortable externalizing them with the person for whatever reason. You alluded to in your notes that this conversation between Annie and Abigail strengthens the bond between the two of them by being bluntly truthful with each other. But it also mm. primes Annie to communicate these issues with Butler herself, which she clearly was not mm. able to do inside the silence of her own head. So yeah. Abigail provides the feedback that she needs in order to get past this own mental stumbling block, in order mm. to progress it with the person she needs to have the conversation with. 
because Abigail is bluntly truthful. That is yes. like a drawback and a strength of hers mm. that we've gone over and how that was difficult with Frank, but here it helps. Mm. Each relationship has its own dynamic and its own strength, and it's important to be able to take advantage of those things. Mm. We've talked a lot about how the conversation informs upon the relationship between Annie and Frank, but the other side of that is that this episode goes into detail about how much Abigail having personal freedom to make her own decisions and decide what's best for her, that's a centerpiece of this conversation, even though when inquired directly about it, she admits she doesn't know what she would do with her own freedom, just that this is one of her needs, that she needs that freedom. It's one of her personal hang-ups back from when she was young, and it's never really been resolved to a certain extent. She's never had complete autonomy to make her own decisions, even though she managed to develop for herself a position of authority and strength back at Weirwood. But something that stands out even more in this chapter is that, as you alluded to a moment ago, Abby treats others the way she wants to be treated. She doesn't back mm. down from difficult questions, just as she doesn't shy away from asking them of others. This is her essential nature. And even when it does cause trouble, she is shown time and time again to remain true to it. Not just true to herself, but true to what she views as the objective truth. She's forthright in everything she has said on every occasion, which is honestly part of the reason diplomacy is not always her strong suit. She's not good at holding back, except with her one major blind spot, James. It's kind of no wonder that Abby was as exasperated as she was with the politicians during the ball. Mm. I've inadvertently kind of got in ahead of this talking point with some of my notes already, just because this is a big part of how Abigail is being characterized at this stage of the book. So it's a big part of what we talk about with her. In order to try to avoid repeating myself, suffice it to say, Abigail compels us in her balance between taking in new experiences and growing and evaluating herself as a result of the broader perspective that she gains from those experiences. And she is balancing that with being resolute in her own principles that she will hold to vigorously. Even as she tries to change and improve, there are some things that she can count on being just a foundational guiding principle of hers that she will kind of take no shit on. We've seen her ask hard-hitting, honest questions of everyone from Jump Street, going back as far as not even just Butler and a few chapters pre previous, but in the very first chapter we saw her in, where she queried how her own father could have fought for what he did during the war in secret rooms. She asks him that when she was a kid. Essentially, Abigail is not one to be intimidated by someone who's in a position of authority over her, from her parents to commanding officers to government officials. As hard as it can be to respond to that sometimes when she will brute force a particular question that is fundamentally a valuable quality we're thankful to have in this cast. 
it just makes me think about how this story shapes Abigail overall and what she will become in the many books that we have not covered at this point, how significant her experiences in this story specifically were for her to figure out how to deal with some of these issues in the future. And yet at the same time, as I said earlier, even if she changes her approach, she finds it important to not compromise on her sense of self, that to back down is anathema to the kind of person she needs herself to be. Mm. It's an interesting tightrope I walk when discussing Abigail, and to be honest, when discussing many of the main characters throughout New Century. At the end of the day, for all the mistakes they make or times they give into weakness, I love Annie, Frank, Jeremy, Abby, and James. For all that I've raked him over the coals several times, I still love Thomas. If I didn't care about these characters, then I wouldn't be so disappointed in them when they do something I disapprove of. But the phenomenon I'm talking about with people like Abby and James and Thomas is about balancing out their characteristics, to use the strength that comes with them without tipping over too far the other way and letting those things be blinders or roadblocks. There's a video game I'm inordinately fond of called Disco Elysium, wherein you start as you do in many RPGs, building your character. But as you decide how many points to put in each attribute, and how those affect your 24 skills, each skill not only explains what it's used for, and what it will mean if you have too few points in that skill, it also tells you what side effects will come from having too many points in that skill. That you may miss things in the world around you while logicking out a puzzle, or be so empathetic to someone that you respond emotionally on their behalf. People like James and Abigail are optimized for certain kinds of interactions, and that means that they have a hard time responding to things that require other skill sets. And as we continue in this story and others, we'll see how that imbalance affects their ability to navigate the world. Chapter 19 leads us into one of the few times that we see things from Jeremy's point of view, because it is his first encounter with one of the famed wind doors. Having it be Jeremy's journal entry is almost necessary here, because it's easier to progress in his personal arc if we can see not just his reactions, but what is in his head as it happens. This scene, therefore, is reminiscent of a more thorough introduction to him back in chapter 3. Because, once more, something prevents him from getting the thing that he desires most, to be able to see and experience either the supernatural or a new world. Everything that he gets, he always gets secondhand through hearsay, and he catalogs all of it, but he doesn't actually get to experience any of it. Mind, mm. the scene itself doesn't focus over much on this idea, because Jeremy's personal reactions are always in the background rather than as a part of the rising action, but it does lend further flavor to the scene and sets up an expectation of what it's going to be like once Jeremy potentially does manage to get some of what he's been hoping for as a result of being assigned to Team Steam. 
it says a lot about the way that Jeremy's desires and impulses have been held in check for a long time now. He's unrestrained in his enthusiasm, sure, but from an early age to his time in Unicorn and now his role in this journey so far, he's clearly made a habit of prioritizing other things ahead of his own interests. That creates a unique twist to his character archetype, because usually when there's this knowledgeable member of the group who gets caught up in their area of niche interest or knowledge enthusiasm like tech or magic or whatever the genre that team ensemble story is going for there's a sense that the character can't be held back and they'll charge ahead you know think in Traptor and she-ra this person who just ha- like will see all this ancient tech and will go full steam ahead and <laughs> as a result does end up hurting people what are you doing you can't take apart the ship while we're inside the ship did you forget about the i don't know crushing void of space hi love thinking about the crushing void of space but there's always improvements to be made i can really boost this baby's speed no they feel betrayed by her when she pursues that in a sort of unquestioning way here jeremy's internal responsibility makes him a really sweet but also quite sad personality it's positioned as this unchangeable element about himself that will keep him forever at the fringes of the object of his life's focus. I like that you brought up Entrapta because she's come up before, specifically in relation to how some of her stuff informed Harry's characterization. But you're absolutely right that Entrapta's excitement with uh, First One's technology is sort of emblematic to Jeremy's excitement about experiencing new worlds it's it's like the characters most marked tendencies were split up between these two people Mm. you get this feeling with jeremy that he is this fundamental force of enthusiasm there's nothing that could stop him except himself and that's just such a refreshing take on the character i think because Mm -hmm. i love a lot of these other examples i love entrapped as much as you know i touched on the journey that she goes on with jeremy it is something to him that feels as if he's in flux because he simultaneously just wants to chase that rainbow mm-hmm. but there's always something pulling him back you know earlier we were talking about with great power comes great responsibility and that's something that jeremy has is responsibility even though on the grand scale of things, he is not the member of the party with the power. He's not even this unpowered mortal individual with a lot of techniques and learned martial arts and gadget, like in terms of combat orientation, a depowered person. And yet he takes what agency he has with deadly seriousness. If I were to categorize Jeremy using Disco Elysium stats, He has an encyclopedic knowledge when it comes to his specialty, and therefore is also very good at conceptualizing big ideas, asking questions, and putting pieces together that others might not be able to. Something that's occurred to me, Jeremy is always a little bit of a side character. He comes to the Mm. forefront on occasion, particularly whenever there's like 
a lot of uh, uh, exposition to talk about. As we'll get into later on, there's a lot of further discussion that he gets deeply involved with once he finally gets some of his desires uh, met, so to speak. Mm. We're talking a lot about meeting desires in this particular episode. Yeah. I think part of the reason why we like Jeremy as much as he does is he's not stupid about it. We don't see no. him do things that appear to be reckless or disobeying orders in pursuit of his goals. Just like Frank, to a certain extent, he's a good soldier. If told not to do something, he won't do it. And that will be a significant component in terms of some of the later chapters that we discuss that he finds a way to get what he wants within the scope of what's going on there. He doesn't mm. appear to be the kind of person that would put other people's lives in jeopardy just in order to fulfill his own needs. He has a self-awareness to him that doesn't necessarily translate to that self-awareness creating a crippling sense of uncertainty to what he's doing he is driven it's just that he has that consciousness of the broader picture that he will take as many steps as he can but not that one step further mm. obviously as you and i are discussing jeremy i find it almost a little bit frustrating that i have to limit ourselves to the chapters that we've been talking about because on the sidelines here i have been preparing myself starting to put together outlines for later chapters where well that's all right greg it just means we have more to talk about next time exactly well that 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 is definitely true but i'm just like <sighs> there are just aspects of some of that later stuff that is so endearing and indicative of why i love jeremy as a character but it's also just as we keep talking about individual characters' arcs, I have Jeremy's own inertia in terms of, but I want to talk about the thing that happens next. Oh, wait, I can't talk about things that happens next. Oh, relatability. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's literally yeah. like, I, I want to talk about it. I really, really want to talk about it, but I can't. <laughs> just take that sound clip of him saying you know like i like i'm not supposed to talk about it but i really want to and just play it anytime we really want to like that's our that's the through the window version of the river song spoilers that i mentioned last time it's the i can't say and i really want to mm -hmm. uh real talk behind the curtains stuff honestly something that helps us is because you go through and you are the one who edits everything together as we sort of prepare for the next stage or we've had the next conversation or recording session and then I'll listen through what you've edited together. We have managed, I think, quite successfully this continuity of through line mm. of our previous points. Because in the early days, I know that we kind of repeated ourselves between sessions a little bit. Oh, God, don't even get me started. In preparation for the upcoming recording session, I was listening back to our old episodes and let them go, and I wince at our early attempts. I'm so very glad that we got better organized, and I got better remembering what I edited recently. Whereas nowadays, we repeat ourselves, but with a sense of context of developing analysis that we are able to take what we know in our sort of 
midterm memory has been a subject of deep analysis and take it to the next step, which I've been proud of our work on this show with. Yeah, exactly. Because when we began, we were, we were just like, okay, first story. Okay, second story. We have to keep our conversation contained to the events of this. But now here in uh, season five, we can finally talk about all the stuff that we couldn't refer to. This is the thing that I had this dawning realization earlier today. The reason why we get better at being quite focused and yet we still have as much to talk about as we had in the early days, more so even, is that we are doing four-dimensional analysis because we are not only talking about and analyzing this present story, we are talking about the stuff that has happened in the past, and we are barely restraining ourselves to talk about the stuff in the future, but we will remember that and apply it in the future when it will be the present, where this will be the past, and no, oh no, I've gone cross-eyed. I knew you were going to end with that. I knew that you were going to. Okay. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of fun here on Through the Wind Door. It clearly. We really do. We we wouldn't do this if we didn't. Yeah. So we skipped ahead a little bit in regards to talking about chapter 19 in order to address Jeremy. But that's because Jeremy's part of this chapter is actually relatively small. And I wanted to go out of my way to highlight him because mm. we've been talking so much about other characters, Miguel and Frau, Annie, Frank, Abigail, James. I wanted the opportunity to properly showcase Jeremy now that he gets to re-enter the story as a voice describing what is going on here. But mm. one of the major focuses of this and the next chapter is the return of <laughs> Tabitha Chorley, voiced, of course, by, you know, um, a voice actor that is particularly important to me. Say no more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the intriguing part of Tabitha's return is that it gives unexpectedly so many opportunities for character development with a bunch of members of Team Steam. Mm. First of all, we see tied off one of those plot threads from Secret Rooms, wherein Tabitha has managed to get the life she said she wanted, and mm -hmm. this feels very timely, considering we just talked a whole bunch about how the previous chapter was a conversation in part between Annie and Abigail about what goals they wanted for themselves. Someone has achieved some level of success in their own lives mm. just in time to, to provide like symbolism in terms of what that might look like for our mm. current set of heroes. Come to think of it, like Abby and Annie's Starlet conversation is very similar to that same scenario that we saw Abby share with Tabitha in the secret room. Echoing backwards, absolutely. Yeah, cue the conversation we just had in the past, <laughs> presently. <laughs> it's an important thing that we repeatedly emphasize the prospect of women in this world having an open-ended prospect of what future they want and how they might obtain it with their own actions. It's also a really useful marking post that's a solid reminder of how much time has passed since Secret Rooms. It seems as if like Tabitha's plans at the time when she was talking about doing exactly what we see that she's done here, they sounded as if they were a broad, long-term ambition for her, something that she would kind of work towards over years. 
And now we find out that she wasn't just spitballing. She genuinely put all the pieces together within the time frame of a single pregnancy. This is not even a year. This is mm. nine months. And that's remarkable. In addition to the impressive timescale, it reinforces the capacity for a woman in a new century to simultaneously pursue the beginnings of being a mother and display their prowess and business acumen. The realization I had as you were uh, going through your own notes here is that we were just talking about the present reflecting on the past. And this is the present that actually reflects all the way back on our first book, because one of the central themes of Rebecca and Amanda's story is that they couldn't achieve the future they wanted on their own terms. In point of fact, their father was specifically getting in the way of that in regards to what was going on with Rebecca's future. And Amanda manages to achieve some level of that due to finding Rafe and being able to build something of a life with him. But considering how important Rebecca is to her, the very fact that the elder Wolverton was being a bit of a bastard with his uh, will details mm means that her own happiness will never be completely solid, given how important Rebecca's happiness is to her. One of the things we talked about way back in the day is how the status quo was kind of shit for our female protagonists and for women in general back in the day. As bad as things have been, over the course of this change to the status quo in New Century, it has led to greater opportunities for women. We've already talked a bit about this topic when discussing the way that Thomas wanted to use the RSA as a way of enshrining a new paradigm for America. Its toxic colonial roots led to things getting as bad as they did, and Thomas spearheads the idea that needs to change in order for them to survive. But another effect of the Wendigo arriving was the dissolution of the cultural and governmental infrastructure that upheld a lot of bad modalities and mindsets. It's easier for Tabitha to succeed because there's fewer things holding her back. And this fact will be revisited in terms of the other things that the Wendigo made possible that were not all bad. Am I saying that the current state of this world is worth all the death and loss? No. But remember Krieger's thought experiment back in Secret Rooms, the one that postulated what would have happened had the Wendigo not arrived. Well, I have my theories, based on our history and industry, as to what the 20th century will hold for those worlds. I'm guessing more war. Oh, yes. Greater, more terrible, and with more atrocious weapons every decade that passes. A global population doubling and quadrupling in size until our cities choke with bodies. Entire species dying out, driven from their land or hunted to extinction. Greed and conflict escalating to the point where the powers in control of their weapons and energy factories could render the earth quite unlivable. And hatred, such burning, murderous hatred, passed from father to son down the lines. So basically the worst parts of the Bible. Indeed. Very possibly a world much like ours. 
and we already know how that's playing out. This world is beset by its own problems, but a key component of New Century has always been that even with all the despair, there is hope. And Tabitha's story is a symbol of that hope. As much as there's a sense that, like, we are continuing to have that sort of men in black style dichotomy of like a person is smart, people are dumb Mm. of like, you know, you are seeing the individuals who are forward thinking, but you are contending with the sort of unseen masses who are resistant to that change. We are nevertheless seeing examples of the broader public actually taking a shine. Not everyone, of course not everyone, but there is enough of the percentage of the public who are taking to women like Catherine and Mm. Annie Oakley to put them on these pedestals and say, yeah, they are the best of what we want America to be. That is something. We haven't seen the full spectrum of the response on that, but the fact that we're seeing a successful play which really pushes Catherine as this modern hero shows that there is literally an audience for that. And most of the time when we talk about propaganda, we get into the problematic aspects to it. Here, not to put too fine a point on it, but this is the kind of propaganda that we can get behind if it leads to a better state of affairs. So Hmm. again, part of the reason why we like Windsor, Virginia as much as we do. You know, we talk about Windsor, Virginia being propaganda as if the original story that Catherine said wasn't propaganda in its own form. When she shares in her own words her life's memories, that is not propaganda in and of itself. The positioning of it within the cartographer's handbook is absolutely propaganda. Mm. Like It already was in the original version that the public was aware of like thomas was having that conversation in arlington that like you know either way whatever the sort of final shape of the cartographer's handbook when it was being decided in the text of the story it was always going to be propaganda it's the question was just what direction were the characters who had a hand in it wanting to steer the country in like okay so we we've taken one step towards normalizing this idea. Maybe it's not getting wide acceptance, particularly in regards to the fact that once the news is out as to the racial nature of its author, but we suddenly like, okay, this is the best thing we've taken away from this. We're taking it one step further down, propping it up and making it more palatable to the audience. So, okay, maybe they're having a harder time swallowing the idea of a black man being in a position of authority in the RSA. But this feels like something that almost would have had truth's hand in it in terms of a form of propaganda that she would have thought the American public would have had an easier time swallowing. I would be aghast if she had no hand in this, (laughs) genuinely. Yeah, that feels like the kind of thing that truth would do, is that if she doesn't feel like she could get things done by growing through her father, then the idea of reaching out the tendrils of her um, position within the RSA government and affecting things that not only are not present to uh, Thomas's way of thinking, but are like things that Thomas wouldn't even care about, like putting on plays, because we already know mm. that he, he views certain activities 
as being not important to survival. Oh, that's exactly what she would do. <laughs> she would go for the stuff that he's not paying attention to. And exactly. by the time like he catches wind of it, it's like, what the heck, are, what the hell are you peddling in this? It's like, what, you weren't going to go see it? Like, <laughs> This is headcanon now. This is absolutely <laughs> my headcanon. Uh, um, I was already looking at uh, Alex, some of Alex's responses to the last episode that we put out. One of the things he mentioned, actually, is the idea of putting out some of those things that he took out of the, 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 the little snippets after the fact that you kept alluding to. He says he wants to, he's thinking about uh, releasing them in one contained form because apparently there's some relevance there in terms of our discussions on Dark County. Oh, lovely. Oh, my goodness. If he does put that out, then that means we can do another uh, Greg and Toby react or something. <laughs> <laughs> what is this Uruboro snake eating its own tail? <laughs> we have a reaction to a story. Alex produces something and we react to that. Mm-hmm. Where does it end? It doesn't. Where we decide. <laughs> <laughs> like, even once Alex finally releases End of a Century... First of all, it's going to take us forever for this podcast to actually get there. But mm. there's so much content here that we're going to be kept in business for a very long time. I like the idea of us being this sort of slow train, just sort of creeping up on Alex in the distance. It sounds sinister, but I promise that like it's a good sort of incentive where I know that he sees us. By the time we get through Steamheart, he's going to be like, Oh shit, they got through the longest one. <laughs> choo choo. Choo choo, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> what no, I don't want that to become a new meme. I'm <laughs> I'm abandoning it. Pull in a breaks. Is this a short episode? Yeah, sorry about that. Once more there was stuff that I had to cut out because of a pause in the recording, so I misjudged how much content was there when I was dividing up what remained into two separate episodes. But on the flip side, At least you're not waiting as long for the next bit. To close us out, an artist I haven't used yet to help me get through the Bush administration. This piece came to mind when thinking about our various heroines trying to imagine and build a future for themselves. So until next time, this is Katie Tunstall with Hold On. Excite me so strong, so